Dr. Dale on Quail, bringing you the latest news and views about all things quail in Texas. Brought to you by the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation, preserving the wild quail hunting heritage of Texas for this and future generations. Major support for this podcast comes from Gordian Sons Outfitters. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this month's edition of Dr. Dale on Quail. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau. Thank you for spending time with us today. You know, aflatoxins are a big topic of conversation in wildlife circles, and this month's special guest has been working and doing research on the risk to wildlife from aflatoxins in deer corn over the past 20 years. Dr. Dale is joined by Dr. Scott Henke with the Caesar Clayburg Wildlife Research Institute at Texas A&M University in Kingsville. Let's go to Dr. Rollins now with our special guest. Thank you, Gary, for those uh, kind opening words and looking forward to this month's podcast. And I think it's going to be of, of interest to any quail hunter, at least in the state of Texas, if not uh, throughout the range of the Bob White. Anytime I give a program on quail management and quail decline, visualize this image. I have a slide of a Bob White on a fence post singing, and all around that Bob White, like the numbers on the clock dial, I have various hypotheses of what's contributing to the quail decline. I have habitat change, I have weather, I have predation, parasites, disease, feral pigs, and aflatoxins. And aflatoxins, which we're going to get into in some detail, will be the highlight of this uh, month's podcast. And looking forward to a good uh, discussion on that. I'm going to reference back to 2010. Uh, in the quail world, especially in north and west Texas, we had a real friend in Ray Sasser, the outdoor editor for the Dallas Morning News. And uh, Ray was, in my opinion, the uh, the premier outdoor writer in the state of Texas for his concern about quail, and we at the research ranch there got a lot of good ink from Ray, and uh, God rest his soul, he passed away about four years ago. But in 2010, he wrote a column in the Sunday paper asking this question, is deer corn a quail killer? Question mark. And I can't tell you how many emails and texts and phone calls I got over the next week or so wanting more information on aflatoxins and deer corn. And we're fortunate today, uh, there's been a fair amount of research done in the state of Texas, and we're uh, going to be visiting with Dr. Scott Henke. Dr. Henke is a professor down at Texas A&M Kingsville and works with the Caesar Clayburg Wildlife Research Institute. And he's done uh, the lion's share of the research on aflatoxins as it relates to deer corn and the threat to quail. So welcome aboard, Scott. We're glad to have you. Well, thank you very much, Dale. I appreciate it, and I appreciate being on here. Why don't you start off by just kind of giving us your bona fides, give us your degrees there, and tell us where you've been and how you got to where you're at. I've been doing this for about 30 years. I, uh, I've been a professor at A&M Kingsville for about nearly 30 years now. It'll come up this fall as my 30th. Uh, I got my uh, first degree from Purdue University with a bachelor's degree in uh, Ecology, evolution, population biology, just a fancy way of saying like a, a population genetics degree. And then uh, two wildlife degrees, a master's and a PhD from Texas Tech University. And from there, I came down to uh, Kingsville and I've been in South Texas ever since. 
All right. Now, again, we, we share a lot of common friends and colleagues, and we've shared graduate students over that time, and it's it's certainly been a productive relationship. And again, I look forward to today's discussion on aflatoxins. Uh, in 1998, when I worked for the Texas NM AgriLife Extension Service, we surveyed deer corn in Texas, and I'm going to talk about more of the results of that as we get into the program. But our estimate of the amount, the amount of deer corn sold in the state of Texas in 1999 was 6 million bags of deer corn. That's a lot of deer corn. It was like two pounds for every acre in the state of Texas kind of thing. So uh, it, is, uh, it is an appealing hypothesis if, uh, if aflatoxins are really an issue and uh, what role they may play in the demise of quail. And Scott, why don't you t start off by telling us uh, what are aflatoxins? We've heard the word, but what are they actually? Yeah, actually, it's a uh, officially it's like a secondary metabolite of a soil fungus in the genus of Aspergilla. The two main ones that you find around here are uh, Aspergillus parasiticus and Aspergillus flavus. Uh, both occur pretty readily, and uh, they're worldwide. But what it is is that fungus uh, makes a secondary metabolite, which is just a fancy way of saying it is it's just basically a byproduct or an excretion of the fungus. And aflatoxin is uh, a toxic compound that uh, can build up. And that's what causes the problem with uh, in the environment on the, on the corn. Actually, any cereal grain could do it. It's not just corn, but uh, deer corn is a real prevalent uh, issue when it comes to aflatoxins. And you mentioned that, again, it's not uh, just in corn. Um, other feedstuffs like cottonseed, peanuts, uh, milo. Yeah, it's, have uh, cottonseed, sorghum, milo, um, uh, wheat, rice, millet, soybeans, sunflowers, uh, even like things like uh, coconuts, pistachios, uh, mesquite pods are a good one for it. So it occurs on a lot of different types of grain seeds. Uh, Corn, peanuts, and cottonseed seem to be a little bit more prevalent, more susceptible than some of the other types of grains. But any cereal grain can actually be affected by uh, the problems with aflatoxin. I spoke with one of my colleagues and quail master helpers up here in this part of the world, uh, Kent Mills. Kent's a nutritionist with Afro Feeds. And uh, because he's told me before that Milo is less susceptible and again, as a quail food, directly, we tend to feed mallow probably more than corn, but certainly corn, deer corn, quote unquote, quail are certainly exposed to that. Um, exactly in the body, Scott, what are we, are we talking about an acute toxicity where we're going to find birds dead on the feed ground, or is it more of a sublethal kind of a chronic uh, cause? It can actually, it actually can be both. Uh, it's got the uh, more sublethal, uh, uh, chronic type of thing is going to be more uh, prevalent, more common than the acute. Uh, aflatoxins, uh, basically, for a quail to really die from the uh, lethal dose, 50, which is basically what it would take, what dosage would uh, kill about 50% of the quail, is somewhere between 2,000 and 2,500 parts per billion. So that's a pretty, pretty high quantity of aflatoxin in order for it to get a single dose and to kill the bird outright. But low dosages, anything with being like uh, 50 to 100 parts per billion 
is enough to actually cause some of the body problems and things. And that'd be very common to hit those kind of quantities. So if you get a quail that's consuming any kind of grain that has got aflatoxin within it, you know, and it eats, you know, 50 parts per billion here, 100 there, and back and forth, it's going to cause damage to the liver uh, eventually, and it's going to build up. And aflatoxin itself, it's a carcinogen, so it can cause cancer. It can also uh, cause uh, problems with uh, mutations. It can cause birth defects. So it has a wide range of problems that it'll do to the body, but probably the biggest one that I think is going to be the main problem for quail is it hurts the immune system. It basically will reduce the immune system. So a normal healthy bird, when it gets exposed to other effects, other diseases, parasites and things, what would very easy be able to fight off, uh, it becomes more susceptible to and might die from other causes. And that's probably one of the, the biggest problems that you're going to have with aflatoxins, especially in the very chronic type of situations where they're going in and consuming these grain and feeders and such that do have aflatoxin issues and, you know, they're uh, reducing their immune system to other types of problems, to other uh, things that might come along. And of course, from a scientific standpoint, those are the kind of cases and the kinds of mortalities that are just almost impossible to pinpoint as opposed to a bird that's dead underneath a deer feeder kind of thing. Is that correct? Yeah. You know, if you, you don't have a smoking gun, that's the big problem because you end up with, you know, a bird here, a bird there that uh, you find dead. And, you know, one might have like a respiratory issue. Another may have, you know, some type of infection or so. And so it, it's going to appear like there's multiple things going on, but the underlying cause potentially at least, could be an aflatoxin issue. Okay, I remember visiting with uh, one of my sources early on in my career there at the Texas A&M Diagnostic Lab, uh, Dr. John Rager, who was a toxicologist. And so when we were talking about aflatoxin back then and, and the various uh, levels, and we'll talk more about the parts per billion and what the recommended levels are for safe feeding and so forth. But he would, he would tell me that... Uh, Despite what the bag says, if the bag says it's 50 parts per billion, which is, I think, the state limit now, but even therein, a bird the size of a cardinal, if it got one quote-unquote hot kernel, that might be enough to kill a bird the size of a cardinal. And so, again, there is some acute toxicity threat to us, and, and we'll be talking more about uh, labeling and some of the ways that we can mitigate the risk of the uh, aflatoxin poison as we go on through the interview. Um, in the liver itself, Scott, I've never, I don't know if you have or not, but can you talk, is, is there any physical appearance as we're cleaning birds? I mean, anytime I see a liver that looks like pickle loaf, I tell people to send me a photo or send that bird in to me because I'm concerned that it might be a bacterial infection. Is there any kind of symptoms of the liver external gross type symptoms that one might associate with aflatoxicosis. You know, it may have a little bit uh, of uh, red or deeper red uh, to the liver or so, but, uh, you know, kind of a necrotic type of look, but it's not going to be anything again that you could really pinpoint because there's a lot of other types of things that might cause liver necrosis. Uh, you can tell a lot through uh, doing histology on the liver, but that's doing tissue slices and such. And so just by grossly looking at the liver, there's nothing you can really see that you can point and say, oh, that's an aflatoxin bird on that one, uh, which creates more of a problem then because 
it's like this underlying, under the surface, kind of hidden thing that you really don't see. And, and you're right when you were talking about the various levels. You know, it's uh, 20 parts per billion is what is required for grain to be sold for human consumption. Anything beyond uh, 20, and you, know, you can't have human consumption for it. Uh, you, in the United States, you can have like uh, calf and dairy cows, uh, must be under 100 parts per billion. If for feedlot cattle, it can be up to 300 parts per billion, but nothing beyond. And it's kind of funny because in the U.S., that's the U.S. limits for human and uh, other things in the human food chain. But uh, as you said, you know, the recommendation is no more than 50 parts per billion for like wildlife feed. But there's really no regulatory group that's out there that's regulating and making sure that, you know, it's, it cannot be sold and such. It's more of a recommendation than an enforcement. And Europe is much more stringent uh, than the United States, where the limit here for human consumption is 20. In uh, Europe, it's only four parts per billion and five for animals. So they're very, very strict in, uh, in Europe. Uh, but in the U.S., a little bit more lax here on what they allow. And a lot of times when uh, grain is, goes beyond limit for what it can be for in the human food chain, then it gets uh, sent out for being used as wildlife grain. And that can be part of the issue. You know, it's already above what's uh, allowed for humans. And so let's feed it to animals. Yeah, and back during, uh, you, you may be old enough to remember the old saying back during the 70s about dilution is the solution to pollution. So if a grain producer, corn producer has a load that's tested, again, hot, I won't define exactly what that means, but his answer to getting that through the uh, grain elevator and into the market would be to dilute it with clean corn, but that doesn't remove the, doesn't reduce the fact or doesn't remove the fact that there are some kernels in there that could be problematic. Especially for oh, birds. That, that's actually that's a hundred percent accurate, right there, because that is the problem with apple toxins. You might have, you might purchase a bag, and you're not going to have apple toxin just throughout the entire bag. You're going to have hot spots, where you know a couple of core grains here, a couple of kernels there, and then other pl places that are going to be protested practically down to zero. There'd be nothing there. And so that's going to be a big issue because when you're testing for apple toxin, you got to really mix up the grain. Because it's not always going to be visible. You know, it, it, you typically, when you think of like this being a, um, a fungus uh, type of issue, you think, okay, if you have moldy corn, it's going to have a high, higher chance of having aflatoxin. Well, not necessarily. You might have really green, moldy corn that, is not, that mold isn't producing any type of aflatoxin within it. Uh, you might have corn that looks perfectly healthy, but... It's got uh, a small bit of spores on there, and they're producing aflatoxin. That can be really hot for a, a quail to eat. And so it's not always going to be really obvious. Then you just can look over your grain and you look over your corn and say, oh, this is good. It's you know, bright yellow, healthy-looking kernels. Everything's great. You know, it may or may not be. And that's, uh, that's part of this is going to be pretty tricky when it comes to that because it does occur in little hot spots here and there, but it's not going to – It'd be extremely rare for the entire bag. Every every grain you, uh, every kernel you pick up is going to be hot. That's usually never the case. Okay, let's uh, let's refresh our listeners again. The aflatoxin is a fungi, a fungus, and uh, take it from there, Scott, and tell me kind of again what the what the mechanism is for the production of aflatoxins in, in the corn or the other grains. 
well, these, these fungi are, you know, producing like, like excrement. It's basically, uh, I kind of tell people it's, it's kind of like the poop of the fungus. You know, it's uh, producing this as a byproduct. Because like in our own metabolism, our own human bodies, when we eat food, our body will convert that food into various nutrients and things. But one of the byproducts we make uh, in the production of our own metabolism is ammonia in, in the form of nitrogen. But ammonia in a human body is extremely toxic, so the body has to then send that over to the kidneys to be able to break it down and change the ammonia, which is highly toxic, to urea, which is much less toxic, and then we excrete that to our urine. Uh, the aspartoxin, the, the aspergilla, you know, is uh, basically a fungus. It's not uh, containing the aspartoxin within its own bodies. So when it excretes it, it's just in the environment. It doesn't need to break it down any further. So it remains a toxic compound uh, when it's uh, formed. And then, you know, it's just on the grains, on the kernels of uh, the grain or corn or such. And when animals come along and eat that, they're eating the more highly toxic substance then. And the fungus can live in the soil for a couple of years, right? And then when the conditions are right, which is typically grain that's maturing uh, under a hot, dry summer kind of a thing, or in more uh, eastern parts of Texas, perhaps southeastern parts of Texas, uh, those those fungi can basically erupt, and then here comes the potential for aflatoxin problems. Is, is that accurate? That, that's it. Uh, basically, the uh, fungi can live in the soils for up to three years, but they're highly productive in reproducing. And so, you know, the parts you see of the, the fungi, like the, the most common fungus that people probably used to seeing are like mushrooms, where the actual mushroom, the part that you buy in the store, that's the reproductive part of the fungi. What you don't see are the little fine microfilament hairs in the soil that are just scattered everywhere. And those are basically the decomposers of uh, the ecology world. They all help uh, the dead plants and the dead animals be able to uh, decompose, break down into components and be put back into the soil. That's what uh, uh, fungi are ba basically in the environment. That's their uh, system. That's their function in the environment is to be a system for decay. And they occur worldwide and different types of aspergilla can be found anywhere from the equator up to, you know, the Arctic regions and the, the southern, you know, Arctic-type regions. They actually can occur uh, in uh, various uh, latitudes and such. It's not just the north, the hot, dry, or humid type of climates. Uh, they do best when uh, the climates, when your uh, substrate has at least about 8% uh, soil, 8% uh, uh, moisture on the grain and about a 70% humidity or higher, and about a 75-degree temperature or higher, that's when they thrive. But they actually can be found in all the way up to where it freezes. Uh, they can uh, be in the hot, uh, humid climates. They can be found in the warm, uh, dry type of climates. In fact, they do really well in like a desert type of climate, and the agriculture fields is where they really do their best. And so that's why they're so well associated with various grains is because the system of producing grains and ag fields actually promote aphylotoxin. Uh, actually, I shouldn't say aphylotoxin. It promotes the aspergilla uh, that uh, can then lead to aphylotoxin. And so you're going to find them in any kind of climate. It's not just a uh, southeastern, hot, humid climate issue. 
it, it, people tend to think that that of aflatoxins because that's where they thrive and they do the best. But you can find them in the uh, northern, uh, midwest, northeast, uh, southeast uh, uh, climates, just you know, pretty much all over the U.S. And so it isn't just going to be like, oh, uh, it's going to be a South Texas issue and the panhandle is not going to have any kind of problems. Not necessarily. Okay. Um, folks, back in on, on deer corn per se, the, the individual kernel. And corn, again, tends to be more susceptible to aflatoxins than milo. And I was told today that uh, that's because the, the, the milo is an open head uh, while it's maturing as opposed to the uh, corn, the ear of corn, which is kind of enclosed. So it's a better growth chamber, if you will, for the, uh, for the fungi. I thought that was interesting. But talk to me about cracked corn versus whole kernel, about cleaned and recleaned corn, and whether or not that has anything to do with aflatoxins. Yeah, actually, the uh, whole kernel corn is less susceptible than cracked corn. Uh, if you have insect infestation in your corn, that can create a higher chance for aflatoxin. Uh, so, yeah, the things when you have broken corn, broken kernels and things, that can lead to a higher incidence than you do when you have uh, uh, whole kernels and such. Sometimes you see bags in the, in the marketplace that say reclean corn. Uh, but that doesn't really have any impact on the potential pro or con for the uh, for the uh, contamination with aflatoxin, does it? No, and actually, the one of the issues too is when you see it on uh, the bags of corn. If you get a bag of corn that says it's aflatoxin free, well, one that is true on the day it was tested, and only the day it was tested. Uh, apple, the aspergilla can occur on the grain while it's growing in the field, when it's being harvested, when it's uh, picked, when it's being stored in the grain bins, when it's in bags at the store, when you buy it and take it home and put it in your barn or my silo or wherever you keep it, and until the day you feed it, it, it can still be occurring. So it is a constant thing. It's not something that, oh, once it's uh, harvested, all aflatoxin stops. That's not the case. This stuff can concur while it's in storage. And so just because it says aflatoxin-free, that's kind of a marketing uh, ploy anyway. Aflatoxin-free to the um, marketing aspect means that it tested less than 20 parts per billion. It could be 19. It could be 19.9. But as long as it's less than 20 parts per billion, they can label it as aflatoxin-free. Uh, but any of... Uh, while it's in storage, once it's been uh, tested, it can still be occurring. And so the label for when it says what the aflatoxin was at the time it was tested, well, it's nice to know that, okay, it tested very low early on when it was bagged, but how long has it been bagged? How long has it been in storage? Uh, you, know, wh you know, when was that uh, corn uh, bag picked and such? How long has it been there? How long has the store had it in storage and things like that? You know, all that can come into play that – it could be occurring, and then how it's kept within that storage. You know, is, is it in a uh, air-conditioned type of environment? Is it stored outside? Is it in a plastic bag or a paper bag? Uh, all that can have a higher effect on your amount of aflatoxin uh, within the storage process. And that's some of the research that we've been able to do, that uh, just looking at 
how the how it's kept in the storage. Um, grain that's kept outside, especially kept outside in plastic bags, you know, has never usually been a good idea. They tend to get higher aflatoxin uh, levels than corn that's in paper bags or bags that can breathe a bit. Uh, if it's exposed, because uh, being exposed to the environment and exposed to humidity can create more aflatoxin problems. Uh, the aspergillus can continue to grow uh, within that. Um, if you have uh, corn that's in a plastic bag but placed into the sun, you get uh, the corn, the moisture in the corn to begin to uh, try to evaporate and the bag sweats. Uh, the corn on the outside of the, on the very outer edge of the bag, but uh, getting in where it's getting sweat and more moisture put on it, has a higher chance of getting aflatoxin being produced uh, on the outer ring of that bag because of the condensation within. Uh, the same thing if you put it into metal uh, uh, type of uh, containers and uh, feeders. Uh, when you have condensation buildup, especially going from uh, early morning where it's cool to a hotter afternoon, you get that condensation buildup on the metal, and it's built up on the outside as well as the inside. So the corn touching the inside of the metal containers is getting more exposed to moisture and then has a higher chance of having more aspergilla on that area. And so... You know, you're, you're creating environments that will help uh, the aspergillus and potentially aflatoxin to be produced. And so you may end up uh, feeding, having cleaner corn or decent corn to uh, feed out, but while it's in your storage or while it's in your containers, it's uh, producing at levels that are beyond what you want to uh, feed to the wildlife. I can remember back in the late 90s, again, when we were sampling corn, deer corn from across the state. Uh, some bags were plastic, and I've got pictures in my slide library somewhere that uh, you can already see the mold forming on the corn because, as you kind of hinted at, it's basically just ter a terrarium at that point, just a perfect growth chamber uh, for corn. So, uh, I, at least in North Texas, I haven't seen any in plastic bags over the last 10 years or so, so hopefully the education on that has, uh, has been beneficial and we're reducing that risk a little bit. So let's talk I, I about think we're here. There's still some uh, companies that I know still use plastic bags uh, to put the corn in uh, that I've seen that things like convenience stores and such. I think they're uh, smaller companies and, uh, you know, kind of like a last-minute type of uh, purchase item, you know, having the corn outside you know, in a convenience store. But, yeah, that's something that uh, may not be the best choice, you know, to, to feed out or at least buy in bulk enough to – used on a regular basis. I guess if you're just going out in the morning to uh, use a little bit of uh, bait to go deer hunting or so uh, and just put it out for the moment, that might be fine. But uh, corn like that, uh, you know, long-term is usually going to build up a little bit more than what uh, other types of uh, storage types would be do. And, and so caveat emptor, let the buyer beware. And especially if you find a really good deal on deer corn, now, that ought to be a red flag to you. Something's not quite <laughs> right. Yeah, that can uh, be. I want to talk now again. We're talking about birds, and that's that's the focus of our podcast. But for deer, for feral hogs, it's really—I won't say it's not an issue, but it's much less of an issue because ruminants, or especially deer, ruminants have the ability to detoxify that aflatoxin to a certain degree. Do they not? Yes, that uh, basically birds are more susceptible than, than mammals to aflatoxin. Uh, smaller mammals are more susceptible than larger mammals. 
and uh, ruminants are le- uh, less susceptible to non-ruminants. So, yeah, when you have uh, deer, uh, they're going to be less susceptible to the effects than uh, non-ruminant animals. And the larger the animal, uh, usually the, the higher amount of uh, aflatoxin you have to get to have the same type of effect. But as you mentioned earlier with cardinals, you know, birds are more susceptible than uh, um, than mammals, and then the smaller the bird, the more susceptible they are. Cardinals, we found mortality at uh, around 20 parts per billion. So what's considered safe for a human to be able to eat, cardinals were still having ill effects. It was burning up their uh, livers uh, at really, really low dosages. The, the biggest problem with a lot of birds, like quail, they're a nice big-bodied bird, so they have less effect uh, on you can, they can actually handle more aflatoxin than something like a cardinal can, but what it does do is hurt their immune system. I've equated it a lot to be like a, a chemical version of the AIDS virus. You know, you end up uh, getting aflatoxin. The bird isn't necessarily, you know, at low dosages going to show any outward symptoms or have any problems or so. They'll still act normal. They'll still be able to uh, fly, move around and such, and everything looks you know, nice and fine. But it's affecting their immune system. So um, when, because uh, the same with like the AIDS in people, n- nobody, no patient has ever died from AIDS. They've died from other types of issues, usually respiratory infections and such. And but AIDS is the contributing factor. It's the one that caused their immune system to really tank and fall apart. So when they get something as simple as a common cold, you know, an AIDS patient may not be able to handle that and could end up end up easily dying from something as simple as a cold, uh, where, you know, a typical person would be able to, they might feel sick for a day or two, or you get a really bad cold that lasts for a few days, but then it goes away. Your immune system takes over and eventually takes care of it and gets rid of it. When you have aflatoxin, the immune system is beaten down. It doesn't have the same uh, effect, and it doesn't be able to ward off a lot of issues and problems that uh, other, other uh, what you would normally be able to do had you not been exposed. And so that's one of the um, research topics that we did do is just looking at how the immune system is broken down. For uh, quails that were given dosages of about 100 parts per billion, which uh, is above the recommended dose for wildlife, but it's a a common dose that you can easily find in bags of uh, deer corn and such, Uh, their immune system was about half of what it should have been. Uh, performing at the proper levels. We even uh, looked at uh, what if you had quail that was given aflatoxin and what if you implanted like a a shot pellet, number eight shot pellet inside their body cavity? How would they be able to ward that off? And typically, like if you would get a splinter in your body or so, your immune system will find that, okay, there's a foreign object in me, there's a splinter, it's going to wall it off with... uh, with macrophages and phagocytes, basically just uh, white blood cells that are going to help fight any type of a foreign body and any kind of infection. It might take that uh, body and, you know, create like a pus around that splinter or so, and then it will push that splinter out toward the surface, throw it out of the body because it's a foreign thing that the body doesn't want. And that's how a normal immune system is supposed to work. Uh, If it can't throw it out of the body, it'll basically start to break it down and digest it and break it apart. Um, but quail that were exposed to aflatoxin, not only uh, did the immune system uh, not function as well, they, they produced about half the number of macrophages that they should have produced that the normal quail 
uh, the ones that were not exposed to. And of the macrophages that they had, they didn't, uh, they weren't able to start breaking down uh, the 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 body that were in them and have the same type of a phagocytic or kind of eating um, capabilities that uh, a healthy normal quail would be. So quail that might be exposed to anything out in the environment, uh, once they've gotten aflatoxin exposed, uh, they're going to be much more susceptible to other things. You know, if they even just get a simple thing as a mesquite thorn, you know, poke themselves so if they, or a cactus thorn or something, uh, things like that could be enough to cause infection. We found that uh, of the birds that we gave uh, aflatoxin to and then uh, implanted in the uh, number eight shot pellets, uh, eventually, uh, it took uh, anywhere from five to two days to two weeks, but all the quail eventually died of infection. And that was just 100 part per billion. Uh, higher levels would reduce the immune system even more. And so it really does have, uh, it has the potential to have a big effect on quail by having that immune system broken down. You don't have to have the dramatic uh, cancer creating uh, effects that you might see with more uh, higher dose acute infection, acute infection, infections. And as we close down the podcast here in a few minutes, Scott, I'm going to ask you for your opinion uh, about whether or not aflatoxin is one of the guns or is the smoking gun. We're, we're, we're going to wind up with that. I think as an aside from the feeding quail, I seem to recall that you also did some research on aflatoxins and bird seeds for your backyard bird feeders. Is my memory correct on that? No, no, that's true. We did that. And, yeah, we had, I want to say it was about, uh, oh, I'm trying to play back a memory, but I want to say it was about 54% of the uh, bags of bird seed uh, were uh, exposing. They didn't always have corn. What we would do is go to uh, a grocery store, a pet shop, or um, grain co-op and just buy uh, random bags of birdseed and test those. And we found anything from really insignificant number of aflatoxin to almost 3,000 parts per billion in certain bags. And people, we were saying, yeah, well, people are, are basically killing their birds with kindness. They were putting uh, birdseed into the various feeders and things, not realizing that uh, the, the feed actually did have uh, aflatoxin issues. And not all the bags had necessarily corn. A lot of it was uh, milo, millet, and other types of the seeds. Because what we would do is uh, we would just randomly say, okay, we're going to buy bag number 57. And we'd go to the shelf and start at the top and start counting the number of bags on the top shelf, then to the middle shelf, then to the bottom shelf, until we found, you know, bag 57, and we would buy that. And so we weren't looking for... Uh, bags of virtue that had more corn in it or a certain type, we would just random uh, pick a random number generator and buy that bag of corn or that, or that bag of uh, seed uh, that was associated with that number and use that. And, yeah, we found that uh, uh, quite a variety of birds were being exposed to uh, aflatoxin. So it's not just necessarily deer corn. It could be uh, bird seed at your feeders and such. has the same type of effect. And uh, one of the interesting things, we also were testing various uh, things on species of birds, if, if they could figure out uh, where aflatoxin is or not. And out of all the bird species, unfortunately for quail, they never figured out where the aflatoxin was. We had uh, feeders that they could uh, randomly choose to go to. And some feeders had no, were tested, no aflatoxin. Some had like 25 parts per billion, 50 parts per billion, 100 parts per billion, that type of thing. And 
quail. Uh, we would randomize where those were uh, feeders were placed within their cages, and quail would uh, eat, you know, at any of the feeders. They didn't really care. Uh, and so they never really figured out where the aflatoxin was. Most bird species were the same. Uh, did the same with the dove, uh, cardinals, starlings, all a variety of different birds. The only bird species we found that actually could figure out where aflatoxin was and avoid it and only go to the zero part per billion feeder were green jays. But unfortunately for green jays, they're like the pigs of the bird world. They would just be gluttons. They would eat a ton every time they would go to eat. And so by the time it took them to figure out where the apple toxin was and wasn't, they had eaten so much apple toxin that they had caused enough bodily damage that they weren't going to survive it anyway. And so <clears throat> even though green jays were very, at the end, were able to tell where, where the apple toxin uh, free group was, they had done too much damage to themselves. So for most birds, then it's going to be a problem. Okay, uh, let, let's take this opportunity right here, Scott, because we've talked about the hazard of contaminated corn and uh, other feed stuffs. How does one go about getting feed tested? Let's say that I'm going to buy a bobtail full of corn, and, and I'm interested, I'm conscientious for my quail, and I want to have it tested. Where can I get it tested at? Well, there are a few places the... Uh, um, Diagnostic Lab at Texas A&M uh, does do uh, will run samples and let you know what the aflatoxin levels are. People can do this themselves. The the equipment can be fairly pricey. I mean, if you're if you're feeding a lot and you're really concerned about it, you know, you might want to go ahead and buy the equipment. It roughly it's, uh, a lot of the equipment is going to be between three and five thousand dollars in order to uh, get the equipment necessary to do the uh, testing, and then. Uh, some training is necessary in the chemicals uh, that are required to do the testing, but uh, it can be done by the individual if they want to do that. And there's a lot of companies out there, if they would just look up on the website, uh, Apple Toxin and Testing, there's a number of companies out there that do produce products uh, that a person can go and uh, do the testing themselves. But the people have to realize that you can't just kind of wing it and throw it together. You, a lot of these tests are very precise on the quantity of adding this chemical to this chemical and waiting the, a set amount of time. You know, you, you can't, uh, you pretty much got to be diligent in how they're doing the methodology because if you don't do it right, you're going to get inaccurate numbers then on your readouts. But it is something that you could do. The, like I said, the diagnostic lab at uh, A&M. Uh, has uh, you, has tested for some folks. Uh, again, that might be a little on the pricey side, but, uh, you know, it is available. But um, probably the best thing that people can do is just, you know, try to limit what they, uh, their, how they go about feeding their grain. You know, I'd, I'd say that, uh, you know, don't buy in such large bulk volume that you can't feed it out within, say, a two-month period. The, the shorter the period, the better. You know, I know it's uh, usually cheaper to buy grain in bulk, especially from like a grain co-op and store it in your uh, your uh, barns or your silos and such uh, on a ranch. But if you can uh, get it and feed it out and have a high turnover rate, that's much better than letting it sit long term. The longer it sits, especially in a uh, non-air-cooled type of uh, environment where it gets exposed to a variety of humidities and things, that can create uh, more of a problem. Uh, the other thing that people, I think, can do is, especially for ranchers that have feeders, um, 
clean your feeders, but I don't mean just uh, make sure they get emptied out. Go in and have um, the people running your feeders scrub them out and clean them uh, with uh, bleach solution, a uh, 14% bleach, which is a really high concentration of bleach because one of the things we found, too, was when you buy just, say, Clorox bleach or any kind of bleach product uh, for, by the gallon from a grocery store, that's not high enough concentration. It'll kill the uh, aspergilla that's there, but it does not necessarily kill all the spores, the little uh, reproductive um, particles that can go out and start new colonies. And so we found that you needed at least a 14% bleach solution in order to 100% kill all the spores. Because you could bleach a surface and put on fresh corn, but if you um, didn't uh, kill every spore, it'll eventually come back and start up aflatoxin once again. So we found that a 14% bleach solution was really needed to make sure you kill all the spores in there. Then because bleach can be a problem in its own right, you have to make sure you rinse out the uh, bleach thoroughly so you don't have um, bleach onto the corn to cause issues like that. But then you need to dry your uh, feeders completely because if you bleach them out to clean off all the old aspergilla and any aflatoxin that might be present in there, then thoroughly rinse it out to get rid of all the bleach but leave it wet and then put in fresh grain, you basically got, uh, like you were talking about, like the terrarium situation started up again where you've got a wet, humid environment with fresh corn. You're just uh, you're taking a chance that it's going to start up again on that corn. And so you want to make sure that your feeder is completely dry uh, once you put in your fresh corn. And make sure, you know, when you get it, at least it is fairly uh, not long-term stored corn, aflatoxin free or considered clean at the time when you're putting it in and only put in as much feed as can be fed out in a short period of time, you know, matter of days or so, because the longer it's in the feeder, the greater the risk that it has. We found that anything in the feeder that was beyond about uh, 10 days were getting aflatoxin levels above that 20 parts per billion again. And so it was one of those things where it needs to have a pretty high turnover rate. So if you don't buy in bulk, have a high turnover rate of your feed, you're reducing your chances of feeding out aflatoxin levels. The longer you keep it stored, especially into metal types of feeders or such, you know, you're creating a greater issue for yourself. And so those are things that you can do to help reduce your aflatoxin chances of feeding out grain to wildlife. Uh, if you do find that you have contaminated grain, best thing is rather than just throw it on the ground, uh, you know, to, for any animal to pick up, uh, best thing is to bury it fairly deeply. And just uh, it does put the aspergillus into the soil, but, you know, you're, keep, you're keeping uh, those uh, contaminated grains out of the hands of a lot of the birds and things. Because one of the things we did find when you have ranchers that will throw corn or any kind of grain and just feed the, put the feed on the road, you know, you might uh, want quail or deer to come to the grain, but you get a large variety of animals coming uh, to it. And a lot of the bird species will come to the grain. And that's where uh, you might have a greater problem with aflatoxin is all the uh, non-target birds that come in that could uh, have a greater chance of getting acute toxicity with aflatoxin. And quail being some of the birds that would come to the, the grain on the roads. And depending on the grain they pick up, you know, it 
may be healthy, zero uh, aflatoxin, or it may be something that would be a really hot uh, kernel that can cause some issues for them. Let's say that a guy uh, heeds your recommendations for cleaning his feeders, Scott. Where do you purchase 14% bleach at? Yeah, that's, that's the thing is we're, there's uh, nobody commercially that I know of that uh, you can go to the store. Only some of the uh, chemical companies like uh, Fisher Scientific or Sigma uh, have that. Uh, it's basically like hospital-grade um, bleach, and so it's not something that's readily available. So that, that does create a problem for uh, just the typical rancher. So <clears throat> what we've tried to do then is just – Tell ranchers that when they're uh, cleaning, go through several cleanings. Don't just uh, do one cleaning and before they put the grain back in, hit it again with another uh, bleach and then uh, water's uh, rinse and let it uh, thoroughly dry and then hit it a third time. And you're trying to you're reducing the number of potential spores each time and trying to get it to where you're keeping it out of your feeders. Uh, but again, have a high turnover rate of grain so you don't give it a chance to really build back up. One of the problems what we found, especially with the uh, folks that were doing just backyard feeders for birds, is they would never actually clean out their feeders. They would just, you know, once the feeder went empty, they would refill it with grain. And it would go empty, they'd refill it with grain. Well, you always have uh, some grain uh, that's stuck in the cracks or crevices, and that's where it really starts to get mold growing in and are become the hot spots. So when you throw fresh grain on top of that, you've already got the hot spots underneath. And so the uh, mold has easy access to the fresh grain and more birds then uh, can get infected. And so it's the same thing with like the deer feeder uh, types of feeders. You can, if you just put in fresh grain on top of moldy sides or moldy pieces here and there, you're just... Uh, adding fresh to an already existing problem, and you're creating uh, even more hotspots then. I'm curious, Scott, one of the recommendations you made was uh, concerning steel barrels, metal barrels versus plastic feeder drums. And you said plastic feeders were less susceptible. Why is that? They seem to have less condensation buildup in them that uh, – the metal feeders uh, tend, especially when you in the, in the morning, when you have like that dew point, uh, dew would uh, settle in onto the metal feeders on the inside and the outside of the feeders and create more condensation than what the plastic feeders did. And I think because of that, that, uh, that condensation buildup uh, would made them less susceptible uh, for plastic feeders than the metal ones. Okay. Now, you've done your studies down in Kingsville in that area. Um, again, probably a more humid climate than San Angelo or Dalhart, let's say, up in the Texas Panhandle. Would you expect regional differences in the concern for either aflatoxin production or uh, concern for uh, feeder cleaning and, and that kind of thing? Well, we're in a cooler climate maybe up in here than what y'all are down there. Well, well, one of the interesting things when we were doing some of the studies with uh, across Texas, uh, we did divide Texas up into the Panhandle and West Texas and Central, uh, Northeast and Southeast and such. And we didn't find a regional difference when we were buying uh, bags of corn or various bags of any kind of grain. 
the problem with aflatoxin occurred throughout uh, the entire state. And there was, because we were thinking that too, that, well, you know, maybe if you're in more of a hot, humid climate, it's going to have higher levels and more bags uh, and uh, being susceptible than if you're in a, more, a cooler climate, more northern climate or drier climate. And that didn't turn out to be the case. It uh, pretty much occurred throughout Texas. Uh, but now it's interesting because you're exactly right on, I think, how people perceive it. It's perceived as a more of a southeastern hot humid uh, issue and not so much a problem if you have a drier climate or a cooler climate and the only time that uh, the aspergilla w wasn't a problem is in the arctic where you freeze it down and it's just freezing uh, then you didn't get uh, any type of uh, aflatoxin issues in the frozen type of climate but anything that uh, was above 35 degrees you know it uh it was made it susceptible. You can have a cool, damp, cool, dry type of climates. It had it had the capability of occurring in any of those types of situations. And actually, one of the things, uh, like the desert climate, uh, the hot and but dry, uh, actually has evolved. Uh, the aspergilla was more evolved in that type of climate than uh, it was in uh, more of a more humid type of climate. So it really is. Uh, kind of an interesting thing how that uh, works out. I think the people's perception of aflatoxin isn't always 100% true because I've noticed that when talking to various ranchers, they're thinking, well, yeah, but that's a, a, a southern problem. It's not something that we really have to worry about here. And I'm finding that not to be always to accurate uh, assessment of the problem. Okay. Thank you for that clarification. Uh, Scott, kind of bringing this to a close now. You've done as much research on this as anybody has, or or more. Uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna put the the finger on you here. Is is this really an issue for us or not? Well, it's one of those. I don't think it's gonna be a big smoking gun. I don't think you're gonna look at aflatoxin and say, oh, that's the reason why quail are declining. Um, I think it's you, when you had you mentioned about your slide early on in the beginning of this that you had a number of different things. Is it predators? Is it disease? Is it parasites? Is it aflatoxin? I think you probably got the right answer on that slide. I think the answer there is yes. They're they're all issues. Aflatoxin, I think, is just one of the issues. Um, it's kind of an underlying cause. I don't think. Uh, it's rare, I think, to find that uh, quail are getting enough aflatoxin to create a an acute toxic situation where they're going to die within a matter of an hour or two or a day. Uh, I think that's going to be really rare. I think the biggest issue with aflatoxin is going to be that chronic uh, problem where they eat it and their immune system is just not up to par. So anything else that comes along they're going to be more susceptible to when it comes to parasite disease, you know, any kind of respiratory issues and things like that, where just general health is going to be going down. And I think that's where aflatoxin can have a, a bigger play. But I don't think it's going to be a big smoking gun where people can point their finger and say, that's the one problem. Why? That's why quail are going down. Uh, populations are declining, you know, pretty much U.S.-wide. And I, I know that's what people want to find that one thing and try to pick that one thing, but I, I think you're right. I think on this case, it's going to be a multiple group of factors, and aflatoxin is just one of them that isn't helping them at all. 
I remind those listeners and readers that, again, if, if you're thinking of a smoking gun, the smoking gun is a revolver. It's not a single shot. And there are multiple cylinders operating and often operating simultaneously. So in the statistical world, we have some really confounded situations that we're trying to tease apart and be able to uh, tease apart those relationships. Scott, we really appreciate your expertise. And again, y'all do, y'all do some great work down there. KWRI, and, and I'm very proud to know most of you and have worked with you and always consider that a, an asset for us here in West Texas. For any r- listeners that wanted to follow up for more information, is there somewhere you would point them to? Oh, yeah. If people want to have just um, ask me a question or so, my email is scott.hinke, that's S-C-O-T-T dot H-E-N-K-E at tamuk or t-a-m-u-k dot edu so scott dot at tamuk dot edu and i'll be happy to answer anyone's questions well that's very generous of you and i did an internet search uh, i want to shout out to uh, one of our colleagues dr neil wilkins who was a colleague of mine with extension at the time and the neil was the one in charge of doing the testing that we did back in 98 uh, 99 and so some of the articles that uh, he written news releases are still on the internet and so if you'll search maybe go to google and search for like deer corn quail texas you'll come up with a half dozen reads and some uh, some some additional resources that you might want to check up on and one last thing and and, and uh, i forgot to mention but our uh, colleague up at texas tech dr brad dabbert Brad did some work, I think, during the 90s where they tested aflatoxin levels of diets of quail, free-ranging quail. And basically, uh, in that study, the ragweeds, some of the natural foods, actually had higher concentrations of aflatoxins than what the supplement did, the the Milo did. Uh, You got any comment on that in, in a closing sense? No, that it, it does occur in, in in nature, and so it's it's going to be ever present because the aspergilla um, they occur worldwide, and so they'll affect a number of different uh, types of plants and things. So it, it's not something that if you stop supplemental feeding, oh, the problem just goes away. It's going to occur in nature as well. It's just um, one of the thing, finds that they, we've you know found is that uh, corn itself it seems to be uh, more susceptible. So if you do uh, feed a lot of uh, deer corn, as you know you were calling it, um, that has uh, a greater potential uh, than some of the other types of uh, grains. And not to say not to ever use corn or so any longer, but uh, you know it is uh, a grain that seems to be more susceptible, especially as it gets older, uh, gets insects infestation, if it gets uh, broken, cracked. Things like that can create a greater issue. And so just things to be aware of, not necessarily things to stop, but be aware of these as problems and issues uh, and know uh, what, you, what you can do to try to reduce the, those quantities. And like I said, just a high turnover rate, feeding things out. Don't keep it stored longer. The longer it's stored, the greater the potential on some of these reads. So it's a reminder of the Hippocratic Oath. First, do no harm. Again, Scott, Hink, Dr. Scott Hinkey, thank you for your uh, expertise and uh, look forward to working with you guys down there. For the rest of our listeners, uh, here we are on 20th of April. And keep in mind, uh, 
our concerns for how few quail we have, at least in the rolling plains and blue quail out in the Transpecos, are real. And I'll be very anxious for you to report how many birds you're hearing whistling uh, starting here in the next couple of weeks. As dry as we've been, uh, expect those birds to stay covered up until we get some uh, notable rains, but hopefully those are coming, say, by the 1st of May. But uh, if you're going out and do some whistle stops, and there's a webisode on uh, on our quailresearch.org for, for uh, how to conduct those. It's not rocket science. Take somebody with 20-year-old ears, not 70-year-old ears, and your results will be much better. But report those numbers in to me, drollins at quailresearch.org. Love to hear from you. And with that, Gary, I'm turning it back to you in the studio. We'll look forward to visiting with you again next month. Well, thank you, Dr. Dale, and thank you, Dr. Henke, for your outstanding insights and information. You know, supplemental feeding will always be a hot topic of conversation in the wildlife community, and I think today's program helps all of us understand that issue even better. I hope you've enjoyed this month's episode of Dr. Dale on Quail. If you'd like to know more about past episodes, go to the website of the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation at quailresearch.org. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau, thanking you for spending time with us today. Until next time. Support from Gordian Sons Outfitters makes Dr. Dale on Quail possible. Gordian Sons, the finest hunting and fly fishing shop to be found. Find out more at GordianSons.com.